Hello and welcome to Oh What a Time, the history podcast that tries to decide if the past was absolutely rubbish. I'm Tom Crane. I'm Chris Skull. And I'm Ellis James. Each week on this show we'll be looking at a new historical subject and today we're going to be discussing the coast. Oh, the birth of weather forecasting, selling coal to Newcastle, the first lighthouse and an extra part in this episode, we'll explain that in a second, the Coast Guard. But we said we promised last week we would have a big announcement and boy have we got a big announcement. We have decided to launch a subscription. What do you mean a subscription? I can hear you <laughs> shout. It's not a magazine. What are you talking about? A subscription? What? Like, like, to sort of 442 magazine where it, where it lands on, on my sort of mat every month. Yeah. A, a little bit like that, but it's a podcast. You get an extra part of every episode. You get episodes a week ahead of everyone else. It's ad free for crying out loud. Plus, this is the big one. You get a bonus episode every month and because the three of us are live animals we're like elvis presley when he had that um when he was doing those long runs um in las vegas you know when he when he was just doing the strip because he just needed to perform in front of people yeah we're the same so should we do any live gigs you would get a pre-sale for the live show so you'd be able to get in quick just before anyone else now tom yes could you talk me through your week this week? My week this week, well, I was uh, writing on Unforgivable with Mel Goodright on Dave. I've been writing on... When did you do that? Monday and Tuesday? That was uh, Monday, Wednesday, uh, Friday and Sunday. Right, okay. uh, also The Last Leg on Channel 4. Okay. Uh, I've been recording... We've done three episodes of this as well. uh, Yeah, yeah. Talk to me about the TV writing work. You wrote wrote for Mel Goodright... Yep. For her programme, Unforgivable, and then for the last leg featuring Adam Hill, Zach and Josh Widdicombe, of course, you were yes. a writer on that, weren't you? I was, now, yes, yeah. Chris obviously will be able to butt me up on this. Tom doesn't want to do that with his life. <laughs> he hates yeah. every single second of it, having to go into the office, he's sitting there, he's coming up with ideas. He's grey, he's drawn... He looks like someone um, with consumption, which obviously is a historical <laughs> disease, the kind of historical disease that we discuss on this podcast, which is Tom's first true love. Now, should enough of you... Sorry, what, what is this section? Should enough of you subscribe to Oh, What a Time, Tom will be able to quit Mel Gidroch is unforgivable. He'll be able to quit the last leg and then he can live his real dream of being a podcast historian 24-7-365. I think that's a really good idea. So if you would like to subscribe, Chris, how can people do it? So the subscription is £4.99 per month. The price of a London pint. Buy Tom a London pint. Look at the man. He needs one. Yeah. yeah. And as Ellis said, you get an extra part in every episode we do. You get episodes a week ahead of everyone else. So if you want to listen to next week's episode, it is now available via the subscription. Every episode ad-free. A bonus episode every month and pre-sale tickets for any live show. And if I you think wanna... it's worth saying, Chris, by the way, that, that extra bit in every episode is a brand new section on history. It's a, a brand new period, a brand yeah. new subject on history in, in the episode. It's not just, you know, more waffle. But how can people sign up to this, Chris? Yes, you've got a range of options to sign up. You can go to owatertime.com if you want to see them all. But you can go to anotherslice.com forward slash owatertime to subscribe. You can also go to Apple on your Apple podcast app. Just go to the Owatertime page and there it is. We also offer a subscription on Spotify as well. But if you want all the links to those things, you can go to owatertime.com. Shall we begin? with some correspondence. I want to read out one email. Now, this is absolutely fascinating. I'm going to read this in full. It's quite a long email, but it's just so interesting. Normally, I'll be honest, guys, we sub them down a bit sometimes. <laughs> we read them, we go, we'll take out that middle paragraph and the fourth paragraph and the eighth paragraph and whittle it down to a couple of sentences so it becomes broadcastable. But um, this is from a guy called Ben Collins, and it refers to Battlefield Artist is what he's written at the top. He said, hello, history buffs. You taking that? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Nice. Very pleased. Uh, after listening to Chris's section about ambulances on your most recent episode, it reminded me of something whilst reading about the Crimean War. Now, this absolutely blew my mind. One thing that greatly surprised me was the apparent numbers of war tourists 
ordinary, curious civilians oh my who made it a point not of just going to visit the battlefield after the action, but to witness and experience the conflict at first hand while it was still going on. That is <laughs> what? A local battle has doubtless always attracted the curious, such as sightseers who drove out from Brussels in their carriages to enjoy the spectacle of the Battle of Waterloo in 1815, or the wealthy citizens of Washington, who in 1861 turned up with their picnic hampers to watch the first Battle of Bull Run and eventually got caught up in the rout. However, during the Crimea, people were travelling all the way from Britain, France and other countries to observe the fighting up close in all its horror over several days and sometimes over many weeks. And he's written here, for instance, <clears throat> when the British fleet in 1854 sailed into Baltic to bombard the forts protecting St. Petersburg, they were accompanied, <laughs> this is so mad, by a small flotilla of private yachts and chartered tourist ships. No. <laughs> While the Royal Navy bombarded the Russian forts at Bomarsand, the Reverend Richard Hughes and his brother got their ship to land them on the beach alongside the disembarking 10,000 French soldiers who, to assault, who were to assault the fort from the land. I'll give you one quote before we finish. My brother was off soon after dawn and secured an excellent position amongst the French sharpshooters, where he got a capital view of everything. I followed soon after and quickly came into view of the fort, which was blazing away pretty briskly. The brightest colours flew in the merry breeze, which was blowing stinking smoke and burnt gunpowder into the eyes of our unhappy foes. This was turning war into a holiday with a vengeance. So people would turn up and watch the action and sometimes basically get amongst it. That is, that's incredible. That's extraordinary. I, I had no idea. Like, we're, the three of us are parents. Yeah. And like, there are occasionally things that I will not do because I will think, oh, they might be quite full on. For instance, I probably wouldn't take my kids into central London in the run-up to Christmas because I think it'll be a bit busy with Christmas shoppers. Yeah. The, the idea of going to a war zone just to watch. As you're packing your bags to go to a war zone. You know, like, would, 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 you, would you or your wife not say, I'm not sure this is a good idea, actually, man. It's a war zone. That's, that's absolutely blown my mind. I, but again, like, I would quite like to, I wouldn't mind going. But again, to use your example of a few weeks ago, Alice, I'd have to be a ghost. That I, I, if I, I would go, I'd yeah. happily go to war. I'm, I'm sure that ghost. could be that could be offered quite quickly in that experience. Around <laughs> <laughs> two hours, I'm sure you'd, you'd achieve that dream. Do you think if you went to see a battle when you got killed and you were a ghost, would you hang around? Like, I'll see how this goes. I would actually. I don't know if, as a ghost, you're the one who gets to make that decision. <laughs> I can tell you why I would hang around. By the way, which would be to. I wait till it finished, and I would follow the person who had killed me yeah. back home to their home, and then I would haunt that house. Yeah, and make them subscribe. <laughs> so that's because that's, you have no way of knowing where they live unless you follow. You just hope they survive, and you get to follow them home and ruin the rest of their life. And then you get there, and then you sort of rattle chains and things until they eventually subscribe to the oh, Water Time uh, subscription <laughs> to get free episodes and <laughs> add free episodes. And if there are any ghosts listening, it's actually quite a good offer because these episodes will be available forever. And yeah. uh, you will be in the afterlife or the sort of the, the middle ground forever. So you can keep coming back to them, which is nice. And if there are any ghosts listening, <laughs> just make yourself known. No, don't. Is... Don't. <laughs> I am not interested. Do you believe in ghosts, Chris? I imagine you do, actually. I remember once me and my wife stayed at this hotel. We were lying there in the dark at night. And you could hear all these creaks, and I said, to, "And I said, is there anyone there?" And so I was like, "Shut up! Shut up!" <laughs> I was like, I like a half joking, like, "Is there is there any spirits in the room with us?" She's like, "Shut! Do not engage this." Oh, I love that. <laughs> Don't engage with the ghost, and then it will go away of its own accord. It will go and haunt another podcaster. <laughs> I can't. Remember, I can't remember what hot, what scary movie it was. It was something like Paranoia Normal Activity or something like that, uh, and then. We'd had an argument afterwards. We don't, we don't really argue much, but this was years ago. And such that I decided I was in such a huff, I was going to sleep in the spare room. And I went and slept in the spare room. But then after about half an hour of being alone in the spare room, I was so scared after, <laughs> after watching Paranormal Activity that I had to come back in and get back into bed. And, <laughs> and it wasn't because I wanted to sort of offer an olive branch. It's because I was too scared to be in my own in the spare room. <laughs> How lame's that? <laughs> I can't do this. I'm furious, but I can't be here. What, what did you say to her? I don't think I said anything. I think I just got in and lay there rigid as a plank. 
<laughs> not in that way. Not like. Sorry, just to be absolutely clear. <laughs> randy. Sorry, that's not that's not that's not what I'm into. Well, the ghost made you all randy. Um, would we do an episode where we stayed at like Britain's most haunted hotel? Yes. Would you do it? Would you do it? I want to see a ghost. Oh no! But I, I want to have a conversation with a ghost. A conversation. What would you say? Where are you from? <laughs> You, you, but you don't have to say it in that voice. No, I know exactly. <laughs> I'm, 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 in, in the way that, in the way that we, the way that Steve McLaren adopted a bit of a Dutch accent. Went exactly, to a, a bit of a ghost accent. <laughs> They'll understand you better. Yeah, exactly. I like the idea that you start with like, "Where are you from?" and the reaction is. Well, Stevenage, but it's like normal. <laughs> it's immediately just quite a flat, normal voice. Yeah, what I never doing? spoke like that when I was alive, and I don't speak like that now. Maybe this is a question <laughs> would, for the what, listeners. If we wanted to go see a ghost, where's the best place? Here is how you get in contact with this blooming show. All right, you horrible lot. Here's how you can stay in touch with the show. You can email us at hello at ohwhatatime.com. And you can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Oh What a Time Pod. Now clear off. All right, we were talking about the coast on this week's episode, and I will be looking at the birth of weather forecasting. I will be talking about bringing coals to Newcastle, and I will be talking about the very first lighthouse. But also, there is an extra part to this episode. Tom is also going to be talking about the Coast Guard in an extra part for subscribers. So once again, if you want this episode in full, the extra part will be at the end. Go over to ohwhatatime.com or hit subscribe wherever you get this podcast. So I'm going to talk to you about the first lighthouse in recorded history, which, as I'm sure you're both aware, is the Great Lighthouse of Alexandria. Okay, and it's the second most famous lighthouse ever behind, and you may know this as well, the one that the family lived in, in uh, Round the Twist, which of course is the, <laughs> <laughs> the, the most important lighthouse of all time. Round the Twist. I grew up on Round the Twist and it gave you, yep. it, it put something uh, like a fear in me about lighthouses because there was always yeah. strange stuff going on and I so, I so associate lighthouses with spooky, weird, mystical things. Great theme tune as well. Have you ever, ever felt like this? When strange things happen, when you go in round the twist. Last night, I was trying to work out whether I would rather live in a lighthouse or a windmill. A windmill like Jonathan Creek or uh, a lighthouse like round the twist. What are you thinking? I think the, my worry with the windmill is the noise from the fan and the creaking of that would just be a bit annoying compared to waves, which are quite relaxing. So I went lighthouse. I think waves are relaxing, but I think a lighthouse, you've got far more responsibility Interesting. Like, imagine if you're you woken know? up by a horrendous crashing noise and a ship has, like, been smashed on the shore. And your first yeah. thought is, oh, my God, what's that? And your second thought is, I think that's my fault. <laughs> I forgot to turn the lighthouse on. <laughs> or I turned, out the, I turned out the light before I went to bed because it was, it was affecting my sleep. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Damn. What, if you lived in a lighthouse, you would be sleeping up the top next to the light. <laughs> <laughs> That's the, so bright. The most uninhabitable bit of a lighthouse. Yeah. Great for I, your bedtime reading. Not so good when you want to drift off. A lot of response, <laughs> lots of responsibility. I don't think it is good for bedtime reading because you'd have to walk around following the light. <laughs> well, you get tired, it'll make you more sleepy. It's perfect. Can you imagine how bright that light, how that light would be if you were in the room yep. with the light? Yeah. Yeah. Too much. Too much, I'm going to say it. Right. Before we start this story, how about a fun little lighthouse story from history? It's a different one. Um, in 1881, this is one of the maddest things I've ever read, in Maryland, Virginia, an ice flow forced the Sharps Island lighthouse off its foundations, after which it floated nearly fly- five miles down an estuary with its keepers still inside it. <laughs> Oh my god. Oh. <laughs> Until it eventually ran aground, allowing the men to escape unharmed. <laughs> a lighthouse got um, dislodged from its foundations and then floated down uh, an estuary for five oh. miles with people trapped inside it. The implication is there that the guy didn't realise, like he was asleep. And when he's woken yeah. up, he's like, oh. Oh, I'm in town. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> if that story, that story is obviously doing the rounds as well. If you're a light among lighthouse owners, and I think you would all you that worry would always be in your head, wouldn't it? And a, a storm, am I about to get washed over here? Yeah. On the plus side, it'd be easy for the coast guard to spot you if you're a lighthouse floating down the street with a huge <laughs> yes. beam at the top. <laughs> of all the things that rescue ships can spot, it's a lighthouse. Whenever, so whenever be- I. I always, even though I don't do much stand-up anymore, whenever I meet stand-ups, I always have um, a real empathy. With, I just, I just, I have a connection with stand-up comics because I did it for so long. Are lighthouse owners the same? Like, are they like yes. like lighthouse keeper or lighthouse keeper sort of nights out where they just talk about the problems <laughs> of being a lighthouse keeper and how itchy roll necks are? <laughs> Which seems to be the only other thing I know about lighthouse keepers that they all wear roll necks. <laughs> Um, yeah, well, I suppose it must be quite a bonding thing, wasn't it? Bump into someone else who lives in a lighthouse. You, yeah, that, that's your evening done, isn't it? Or is it like a busman's holiday? And you're like, oh, yeah. Yeah. Yes, it is a big bulb. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, it is difficult trying to get a sofa which is bendy and fits the living room. <laughs> it's very annoying. Okay. The Great Lighthouse was constructed in ancient Egypt during the first half of the 3rd century BC by order of the new emperor, Ptolemy I. Now, and this thing was an incredible sight. It was over 300 foot tall. And at the wow. time, it was the second tallest man-made structure in the world, only behind the pyramids of Giza. To give you an idea, that is double the height of the Statue of, uh, Statue of Liberty. Wow. Okay, so that's back in the 3rd century BC. Unlike the modern image of a lighthouse today, it was built more like a more like a tiered skyscraper. It had three stages, which each layer sort of sloped inward slightly. The lowest structure was square. Next was octo- um, octagonal, and on the top it was a cylinder. And on the very top of that, there was a colossal fire that was just raging at all times. I think I find oh. it quite hard to work in a building where there's a huge fire on the roof at all times. Yeah, that, that would unsettle me, me. I think. <laughs> That is, I mean, that's the, if you work in a modern lighthouse, you're flicking a switch. There, exactly. Like, I've just looked at a picture of this thing. It is insane. It's like a it's castle ginormous. and an enormous bonfire at the top of it. So you're having to lug all the wood up there, presumably. Yes. And they, there were rooms throughout the structure as well in which people worked to sort of keep the lighthouse going. I, you wouldn't want to be in one of the top rooms near the fire because I imagine that's quite, it's quite hot working conditions. You're already in Egypt. And just above your head, there's the biggest fire in, <laughs> in the world. Just how yeah. hot that would have been. Trying to get your office work done. Just baking, naked. It's the only way you could deal with it. Yeah. Everyone in the open plan office is naked. It's too hot. <laughs> so, in fact, some reports even mention that the lighthouse may have had a large curved mirror at the top, which helped project those flames, the lights from the flames, further. So oh, the ships wow. could see them far away. But also, and this is an amazing thing, so that they could be used as a weapon to concentrate the sun and set enemy ships ablaze. What? So, <clears throat> what, in the, the... Like, like burning ants with a magnifying glass? Exactly like that, yeah. But massive. But massive. So you, I guess you'd be on your ship out at sea and then someone would point out you've got a red dot on your arm and you're sizzling. <laughs> <laughs> Well, then they'd realise what's happened. What's that? Why do I smell bacon? I think I'd like to put that up there in the list of horrific ancient weapons. I think that's up there. Isn't yes, it? and it's a long list, but that's definitely a worthy inclusion. So, in terms of resources, I'll tell you about how this thing was built. It was built using solid blocks of limestone and granite. It cost 800 talents of silver to build, which is the equivalent of £16 million today. Using surviving wages list from not long before, just one talent could pay the wages of a skilled labourer working five days a week, every week of the year, for nine years. Wow. Okay. Does it still feel like a bargain? I wouldn't say a bargain. I'd want to know as well how effective it was. A cost-benefit analysis. Yeah. Because this is the first lighthouse. So... You know, you're having to sell in not only this lighthouse, but the idea concept yeah, of lighthouses. Yeah, yeah. So it's a tough sell. It is a tough sell. However, I have an answer for that. In that almost the use of the lighthouse was slightly secondary. It did help guide sailors through the limestone reefs around the shore. But the main reason it is built was it was primarily a symbol 
of growing power for the Pharaoh Ptolemy the First. So basically, uh. the reason he built it wasn't really about the its use as a lighthouse. It was primarily bragging rights. Uh, so much so he insisted on having his name inscribed around it. Uh, this is a little thing that I quite enjoyed. The guy who, uh, the architect, Sostratus, um, or some people debate whether Sostratus was actually the architect, but uh, many people feel that he was. He was so annoyed about the fact that the pharaoh was taking all the claim for this that he hid his own name on the stone underneath the plaster on which he wrote the, the pharaoh's name, knowing that when the pharaoh died the plaster would drop away, revealing his name. Oh. Uh, that's like, um, Ar- that's like Arsenal fans who worked on the uh, the new Spurs stadium, burying Arsenal shirts in the foundations <laughs> and things. Oh, is that what they do? <laughs> yeah. My worry with this, L, I don't know if you're saying, is that you've got to make sure you get the timing right as to when that plaster's going to drop off. It can't <laughs> be like a week later when the Pharaoh's coming round again. And then yeah, it plops, and a, there's your name. A second look at his brand new lighthouse. Hang on. Sort of tapping it. when You know when you check walls when you're being shown around a flat? You sort of yeah, tap yeah, on the yeah. walls. You don't really know what you're doing. But it's yeah. the most pointless tap there is, I think. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so <clears throat> it was built as this sort of bragging right, but it had a striking impact on the image of Alexandria. This is what's interesting about it, really. Much like the Statue of Liberty in New York, it soon provided Alexandria with an identity and it started to draw in tourists, ancient, medieval, European, Levantine, Levantine um, Christian, Jewish, Arab, and they could all buy merch. Um, would, you like to, <laughs> would you like to guess what the merch was for this massive lighthouse? Lighthouse well, comes with a picture of a lighthouse. <laughs> Little bits of a lighthouse, like at the Berlin Wall, T-shirts, a massive pencil. Have your photo up the lighthouse. Yeah. Well, the main one, this is this was the big seller. Were I went to visit beans. humanity's first ever lighthouse and all I got was this lousy t shirt. <laughs> and it doesn't even really work as a lighthouse either. <laughs> um edible beans stamped with the symbol of the tower. Oh, that was that was the big one, which were also purchased and consumed by the residents of the city too. I'm managing the idea of us taking our children around a gift shop and trying to fob them off with that. You can't have the T-shirt. You can't have the uh, maracas. You've got to have the edible bean. I don't know though. If my, if we went to visit a tourist destination of that type, and there yep. were and there were sweets that were stamped with a picture of it on, they were up, that 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 would be the choice. Okay. Yeah. See, I'm imagining it's like a kidney bean, though. It's not a sweet. I'm imagining. Yeah, but it's... in a, in a, in a pre-Haribo age. Oh yeah. You know, <laughs> be, beans would be quite nice. I think would be seen as a treat. I think that's actually that's very modern. That strikes me as very. I really very like pre Haribo. So we've got BC, <laughs> AD, <laughs> and PH with yeah. pre Haribo. I think that's. The, I, I think we found a more new format point. If anyone has, uh, is that an abbreviation? What would that yeah. be? What's that called? Yes. For a time period that people think yeah. needs to be noted with you, two letters. If you want to rename some eras, knock yourself out. We often talk about um, ancient jobs that we could have done mm. because it's a constant theme on this podcast how hard and difficult uh, old jobs were and how unsuited we would have been to them. Yep. Working, uh, selling sort of, you know. Uh, merch for a lighthouse is absolutely Dream. something I could, Working in a gift shop for a lighthouse is definitely something I could I do. actually, I'd go as far as to say, Ellis, I think I quite enjoy yeah, I think I'd being be the bean seller in Alexandria <laughs> at, the, at the lighthouse. It would be quite a yeah. nice job. Do you think, Some yeah. lighthouse beans? No problem. And a t-shirt? <laughs> yep. Do you, think, do you think in like antiquity you could get a guided tour of the lighthouse? Do you know what I mean? Do you think they were doing like tours like three times a day? If you've got a gift shop, know. if you've got a gift shop, sure you're doing tours. It's possible. It's perfectly possible because it was all about selling the idea of Alexandria and their achievements. So it may well have been uh, possible. Um, and to wrap up, so in fact, this lighthouse was kind of so successful and so loved and drew in so many tourists that it soon became a feature of most ports. It really impacted um, the world, particularly in Roman times, with the technology carried by the empire as far north as Dover and west to the um, Iberian Peninsula. And the medieval world, too, adopted the technology. Several surviving examples include La Lanterna in Genoa and the Kopu Lighthouse in Estonia. So it really had an impact and it spread. That's incredible. There we are. So that is the first lighthouse and the first uh, gift shop bean. It is me. 
I'm going to talk to you about a time. I want you to. First, I want to talk to you about weather forecasting, but I want you to imagine firstly a time before weather forecasting. Can you really even wrap your head around that? Well, the other day, wow. do you are you too old enough to remember the Great Hurricane of 1987? Oh, yes, I do. Actually, seared into my yeah. memory, and I don't think anyone talks about it enough. Big tree fell down in our garden. It was huge. Yes, so a fence fell down because <laughs> there's the, the there's the really famous weather forecast, the bulletin, where Michael Fish says, oh, no, a woman from France rang the Met Office today to say there's a hurricane on the way. Uh, can I just say, just sort of reassure her, it might, it might be quite windy, but there certainly isn't a hurricane. And then the next scene in the documentary is, you know, sort of Kew Gardens has been destroyed and <laughs> all that kind of stuff. The other day I saw something I'd never seen before. It's Michael Burke bollocking Ian McCaskill. Right. Saying, fat, he, he started off by basically saying, fat lot of good you were uh, last night. <laughs> you probably explain for overseas li- listeners who Ian McCaskill is. Ian McCaskill was a very famous w- weather f- forecaster. He was a weather reporter on the BBC News. And Michael Burke yeah. was the anchor of um, uh, news bulletins. So he was a very, very famous TV journalist. And the, the cockab had happened on the BBC and Michael Burke is presenting on the BBC, but that does not stop him from going in two-footed on Ian McCaskill, <laughs> who looks who looks chastened like some little boy who's been told off. It's awful. Do, do you know what, as wow. well, like Michael, it's Michael Fish, isn't it? He's the one who gets the forecast wrong in the great storm of 1987. But yeah. it's weird when you watch the footage of that weather broadcast where he's like doing, he's doing like banter. And he's going, oh, we go. When have you ever seen a weatherman go, what, we're getting all kinds of like messages in from people? You're like, tell the weather. When has this ever happened in the history of weather forecasting? What? It's really, really strange. And also, this woman in France correctly calls there's going to be an enormous storm. And he's going, absolute moron. (laughs) I've had a a letter from this wanker in France. What I basically need from the weather is for them to come out and just say, to tell me if I need a coat or I don't need a coat. That's, yeah. all, that's, all, that's all I need it to be stripped down to. It doesn't need to be more than 10 seconds long. Put on I'm a not, coat or you're fine in your jumper. I don't want to criticise Izzy, my fantastic fiance. However, the mother of my children, her inability to decide if she needs a coat or not is honestly <laughs> like an illness. <laughs> and every day... We have this discussion at, at length about whether she'll need a coat or not, or what sort of coat, or whether she'll need a cardigan, or whether she'll need to wear ankle warmers. So is she looking out of the window? What's happening here? What's the... Yeah, but also asking my advice. I'm like, just, it's, it's, it's November, just wear a coat. <laughs> And Izzy lives in an age where you can just, you, there's so many ways of finding out what the weather's yep. going to be like I've in the next hour. Apps. The yep. next step, you know, you know, Apple do this great thing where you can actually see the rain clouds moving over London, and yep. there's so many options for finding out what the weather f- is going to be. Throw back a hundred years more, there was just no way. One of the ways people used to tell the weather is they would look at animals, and animals would sometimes right. exhibit unusual behaviour yep. before storms. Have you heard this? Ah. Yeah, cows lying down and all that. Kind no of one stuff. knows for sure what it is, but they think it's their keen sense of smell, hearing, sensitive instincts. Uh, maybe dogs they think can sense a change in the barometric pressure that comes with storms, causing them to bark, cuddle, or hide in an attempt to seek shelter. Before the Boxing Day tsunami of 2004, eyewitnesses said they saw elephants screaming and running for higher ground, dogs refusing to go outside, flamingos abandoning their low-lying breeding areas, and zoo animals wow. rushed into their shelters and could not be enticed to come back out. So it's a long-held belief going back wow. centuries that animals possess a sixth sense for the weather and know in advance uh, whether a storm is coming or not. So if you ever see, you know... A robin with an umbrella, then you realise that <laughs> <laughs> you probably need to go and get your, your well, chaffinch got a North Face jacket on. <laughs> Do you know what? It was Zipped really up like a football hoolie. It was really um, pelting it down, raining the other day, and I looked out into my garden. I just there was a pigeon just stood outside my back door to my kitchen, just stood there in the rain. I was like, oh yeah, that's what you do, isn't it? You just you just outside. I don't know yeah. what I was thinking. I was like, is there not like a what? pigeon shelter? <laughs> We might have a coop, I suppose. Yeah, maybe. yeah, yeah. Was, uh, just there in the rain. I've had to quote for sorry for it. For hundreds of years, people would look up at the sky, look at the lining of the clouds, uh, try and just sense is rain coming. It's almost like this sixth wow. sense that you have to try and pick up. That's how it worked for thousands of years. That was probably your only method, really, of trying to predict the weather. But we knew 
given the concerns of shipping and international trade, people wanted to be able to predict the weather. So there's a real kind of drive to understand how it might be possible. And throughout history, various different cultures have attempted it. The ancient Babylonians used a mixture of astrology and omen and proto-scientific observation of clouds, winds and halos of light to predict uh, weather patterns. And they wrote these down in a series of astrological diaries that survived from the 7th century BC. But uh, it's going to be bullshit, isn't it? Yeah. And when you'd get it right, you'd think, it's a good system. <laughs> and then you'd get it wrong and you'd be like, yeah, well, weather's unpredictable, isn't it? So uh, let's <laughs> so not can't... blame the system. I'm st- still fairly confident that the system is a good one. Yeah. The ancient Greeks tried to understand the weather. Aristotle, philosopher, scholar, author, and tutor to Alexander the Great, even wrote a book on the subject, Meteorologica. The book penned in the middle of the 4th century BC and had observations on rain, clouds, wind, thunder, and lightning, and even coastal erosion. And it gave us the name for the science of weather observation and recording to this day, meteorology. Thank you very much, Aristotle. So for centuries... (laughs) Thousands of years is a mixture of omen and observation. But in the 19th century, science and technology intervened and one man, already famous as the captain of HMS Beagle, the ship that carried Charles Darwin on his voyages in search of natural evolution, invented modern weather forecasting. His name was Robert Hot Coffee Fitzroy. Now, why do you think he's got the nickname Hot Coffee? I don't know, but I love it. What a fantastic nickname. Robert Hart Coffee Fitzroy. What are you so saying? So he was a captain. He was a ship's captain, yeah? Is yeah. that what you're saying? Yeah. So I, I'm going to go very, very basic. Uh, he never slept. He just constantly had coffee. So he was always on the watch. Uh, you, you can't... I mean, he's got the nickname Hot Coffee because he's got a violent temper. Oh, oh right. Okay. okay. Angry man. I don't know what hot coffee, though. I can't really... You're very kind, Chris. Your reaction there suggested that I was on the outskirts. Well, you know, he's up all night drinking coffee. I couldn't have been more wrong. (laughs) If he's up all night drinking hot coffee, he's going to be angry, isn't he? He's naturally... I think he's naturally... But there's no way I'm squeezing through with a half mark in my GCSEs for that answer. I'm nowhere near. (laughs) (laughs) I'm very flattered. I'm very very sweet. Hot coffee. Yeah. Robert Fitzroy was born into an aristocratic family in Suffolk in 1805. He joined the Royal Navy in 1819, aged 13 years old. It's mad, isn't it, when people are joining? Yeah, yeah. Crazy at 13. Following year, he was posted to his first ship, the HMS Owen Glendower. By the time he was 19, he had secured a commission as a lieutenant and was rising steadily through the officer ranks. In his 40s, however, Fitzroy's health began to decline and he retired from active duty in the Royal Navy in 1850. And it was at this point he started working seriously on his scientific study of meteorology. In 1854, he was appointed as the meteorological statist to the Board of Trade, Britain's first stato of the weather and the head of what is today the Met Office. The first... Ah, the proto Michael Fish. Wow. <laughs> so the idea was that Fitzroy and his small staff of three would gather in information on the sea and coast using the telegraph network, which was new, to produce data and charts that would aid navigation for the ships in a globalised maritime economy as existed in the 1850s. With Britain at its centre, getting goods from port to port safely was vital for business. And so that was really led to the desire to kind of get weather forecasting nailed down Fitzroy as well so they would just to be clear they, they would receive all the information and they would basically map out what the weather situation was for shipping around the world from this information that was coming into them yes exactly that a storm in the Black Sea in 1854 amidst the Crimean War had destroyed vital supplies being delivered to the British and French allies in support of their battle against Russia only in the aftermath was it realised that the storm had been tracked through the Mediterranean on its way to the Crimean Peninsula but there was no method of reporting its existence so this was the idea behind what Robert Fitzroy was trying to do get the information in one place and disseminate it widely much like our podcast in a way isn't it that's what, that's what we do <laughs> <laughs> you think uh, yeah, actually but... and it actually has more global significance than the <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> The French astronomer Urban Le Verrier, who correctly predicted the existence of the planet Neptune in 1846, similarly recognised the potential of a central office for the study of meteorological phenomena. Le Verrier was was to be tasked with providing uh, 
a method to disseminate that information in 1855. So from a room in a Paris observatory, he established the French equivalent of Fitzroy's meteorological office. Within a decade, Paris was receiving telegraph reports from all over continental Europe. And at 2.30 p.m. every day, the bulletin was was to be issued. I wonder how accurate it was and how... And whether people believed it or how much they believed it or how much faith they had in it is probably a better question. Because yeah. people, this has bothered people for thousands and thousands of years and it's been useful knowledge, you know, f- forever. Yeah. So a, a, a useful, a, a, an accurate weather forecast is such an, a useful thing. But I imagine they would have embraced it with sort of faith and, and hope, wouldn't they? If, if previously it had been, you know, looking out for a robin with an umbrella, now at least it's something. You're kind of you. You. I think you. You probably would yeah. have to embrace it with faith. It'd be so much better than what had been before. The real drive for weather forecasting in the UK came after a civilian tragedy. I don't know if you've read about the the Royal Charter disaster of 1859, with a, a, no. a ship sank with over 400 souls on board in a terrible oh, storm off of Anglesey, and this led Fitzroy to really put his his plan for genuine forecasting into effect. So he he oversaw the installation of more effective weather warning systems and marshaled predictive weather data using a network of barometers he ordered to be placed around the coast of the UK. And the first set of forecasts created by Fitzroy using the readings he received in London were to meet the demands of the Board of Trade and so were published in February 1861 as the shipping forecast, the first one. Oh, interesting. And then the weather forecast, more generally, uh, produced by what we now know as the Met Office, was adapted for the Times in August 1861. So August 1861 is the first time you could buy a newspaper and see a weather forecast in there. So within a year, Admiral Fitzroy's weather signals were available in newspapers all over Britain and Ireland, and very soon they spread to Australia and New Zealand as well. But because this is early weather forecasting, they're getting it wrong a lot. The government began complaining about the cost of all the telegraph signals being sent. Shipping companies complained that storm warnings led to fleets being grounded uh, uh, when the weather didn't actually turn out to be kind of stormy. So there was an enormous, everyone riled against the Met Office, essentially, for you, you keep getting it wrong. Fitzroy began spending his own money, and on the 30th of April, 1865, he took his own life. Oh, and no. after his death, others had to champion the cause of the weather forecast, and they succeeded, obviously. Fitzroy succeeded, because look all around us now. The weather forecasting is relatively quite accurate, never been as accurate as it is now, I would say. And... There is still, still to this day, I don't know if you've heard the shipping forecast, which I, I love, a, the great thing about British culture, the shipping yeah. forecast. And if you listen carefully, you'll hear a name. Fitzroy is one oh, of really? the areas in the shipping forecast. Oh, Can you name any others? That. No, because it's just gobbledygook, isn't it, the shipping, the shipping forecast? Occasionally, Can I tell you I... something genuine, Mike? My... The hairs on my arms just stood up on end. <laughs> what you what? I found that genuinely quite like, really moving that his name is in that. That's yeah, so his name's he's got one of the shipping forecast areas is Fitzroy. Oh. I love Dogger. Oh, well, richly Dogger. deserved. You That's must incredible. know Dogger. Oh, yes, Dogger. German Bight, yeah. Forth, Humber, Thames, Dover, Shannon, Rockall, Bailey. It just sounds like complete stream of consciousness nonsense, <laughs> doesn't it? The, yeah. the ship of forecast. And every time I hear it, I always think to myself, imagine understanding this. Yeah, yeah. I go, oh, yeah, yeah, that, that, that good, good shipping forecast tonight, I thought. Dogger and Fitzroy. They, to me, they sound like uh, lands on a snag do. <laughs> Where's Dogger? What's he up to? Don't ask. I think we all know. <laughs> um, amazing. What a legend, Fitzroy. That's incredible. Yeah. Um, thank you for that, Fitzroy. Before I begin, I was very surprised by something that Tom and Chris admitted before we began recording. I'm going to be talking about the coal trade in Newcastle. And I said, coals to Newcastle, which I thought was a very, very famous idiom, which the two of you hadn't heard. Never heard that in my life. I've never heard it. It, it does make sense to me when you, when you explained what it meant. Yeah, uh, I, I completely get it, but I've, I've, it's not a phrase I've it's, ever heard. It's also that embarrassing thing where you ask someone four... I asked you four times what you were saying. <laughs> and in the end, I went, yeah, 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 yeah. And I didn't know what you were saying. Well, 
It's it's um it's a it's a very famous uh, British idiom, and it means to take something to a place where it's not needed because a large amount of it is already there. So you know, there's For example, already an, um, introducing a history podcast for an already overcrowded market. <laughs> yeah, yes, I... <laughs> yeah. So it, it's it's an idiom, a British origin, describing a pointless action. We we should have called this podcast "Coles to Newcastle." <laughs> Anyway, uh, I'm going to begin by discussing the uh, the coal trade in Newcastle in the Northeast. I know an awful, I'm an awful lot. I have studied the coal industry in South Wales, so I do know a, a bit about the uh, coal industry in South Wales. I didn't know an enormous amount about it in the Northeast, and it's got slightly yeah. different uh, beginnings. So in December 1756, George Blount, who was a purveyor of wood and coals, wrote to the royal family proposing to supply fill to the household of the then Dowager Princess of Wales from the 1st of January 1757 to the 31st of December that year. And it was £2 and two shillings for every children, right, which is about 2.7 tonnes, and then to pay an extra shilling for delivery because she lives in Kew. So this was a big contract. So Blount had supplied hundreds of children of coal and he charged 385 quid for delivery which meant that the energy bill was nearly 72 grand in today's terms. <laughs> wow. <laughs> now, we're all struggling with our energy bills, but that is that is excessive, isn't oh, it? God. Yeah, yeah. Now, the coal he supplied was sea coal, so it was shipped along the coast from Newcastle down to London. Oh, okay. So, so the, those two points were really, really important in a global network of trade, right? The global network of trade in energy. And it made yeah. early modern Britain enormously wealthy. But this, this sea coal, it didn't mean coal sent by sea, but rather coal collected, at least at first, from the sea. Now, this was something oh. I didn't know anything about. So you had terrestrial open cast mining, that followed. But this field, sort of the, the early coal that they were getting from Newcastle, it had broken off from exposed or underwater coal seams and then it washed up on the coast, on the Northumbrian coast. And then it was collected by people a little bit like cockle pickers. They were just picking it up from the beach. Now, I, I had so no idea... So small pieces of coal we're talking about here. So it's not yeah. like things they're whacking with, with axes to break... It's, it's, it's yeah, yeah, it's, it's yeah. not like... Uh, you're not excavating coal like you would in a coal mine. It was, it was being washed up on the shore. Fascinating. And then it was taken to Newcastle and it was sent by ship to ports all over Britain. And then from there inland, but mainly to London, where from the reign of Elizabeth I onwards, coal steadily became the mainstay of energy consumption. So the sea coal trade was known from at least the 14th century onwards. Now, coal is an interesting one because when I think of coal in South Wales, I think of it starting sort of late 1700s, maybe so 19th century. Uh, But there were coal mines in Pembrokeshire, for instance, much, much earlier than that. But you had alternative supply routes. That was from uh, Whitehaven in Cumbria, where Benjamin Franklin, uh, during a visit to London in 1772, he wrote home and he told his family, he said, listen, I went, I went to Whitehaven, I went down the coal mines till they told me I was 80 fathoms under the surface of the sea, which rolled wow. over our head. So I've been nearer both the upper and lower regions. I find that genuinely scary, by the way, uh, as an idea. Terrifying. That, Why it, I, would that you? actually, on a deep level, unsettles me. You could... Not promise me enough that it was safe. In 1772, 80 fathoms. I don't even know what a fathom is, but it sounds deep. It doesn't feel. It doesn't feel good. Whatever it is. Do you remember when those Chilean miners got stuck in that hole? Oh, awful! And and like we got them out with modern technology. It's happened, hasn't it, throughout history that people have been trapped under, like in that kind of scenario. Oh, yes, horrific. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You've got. Absolutely no chance. If you go to things like the Big Pit Museum in South Wales or at the Ronda Heritage Park and the museums, there's loads of stories about oh, this. It's no. just it's just horrific. A fathom um is about one is about six feet, it's about one point eight meters. And how many fathoms did you say? Eighty, 80. fathoms under the sea in seventeen seventy two. No, Not thank you. No, no. No, 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 no. We, do, hu- I'm going to say humans aren't meant to be there. Every, <laughs> but did, every... you know, like last week, we were kind of mocking the channel, the, the attempts to stop building a channel tunnel in 1880, thinking there's no way you can dig under the sea. But here they are. They're digging. They're 80 fathoms under the sea. Every creak and every noise would be absolutely <laughs> petrifying, wouldn't it? 
Could be a ghost. Could be a ghost. Don't rule that out. Make it a ghost. <laughs> I'm imagining with every noise, Ellis, you're dropping your axe and you're heading straight for the door. <laughs> and this is happening at least 70 times a day. Yeah. And then you return. You go, sorry about that, guys. Sorry, I thought it was... It's all right. Anyway, where were we? Ching, God, I'd, ching, God ching, I'd be fit. Slight noise, and Ellis is off again. Constantly <laughs> running back to the surface. Yeah. If you're on shift with Al, and you're like, oh, for God's sake, he's going to be constantly legging it. He never gets around him, though. He's completely skint. He must, he's, he's in about 10 feet of the last year. He's never down here for long enough. He's alive, and that's the main thing. And then you had a route which ran up Scotland... Uh, Scotch coal, and that was often the subject of trade disputes between Scotland and England. So in 1563, the Scottish Parliament banned the export of coal entirely because it thought the supplies were about to be extinguished. They weren't, obviously. But that decision allowed Newcastle, which was already a major supplier, to race ahead. It would face no serious competition as a coal port until the 19th century when South Wales and its ports at Cardiff and Barrie became the most important coal field in the world. Now, Seacoal was not without its problems. I didn't know anything about Seacoal. I found no. this so interesting. In the 1680s, the diarist and naval administrator Samuel Pepys complained that the London air was so filled with the fuliginous steam of Seacoal that one can hardly see the street and it fills the lungs with its gross particles. Has there ever been a time when yeah. air in London has been of a high oh, quality? God. No. It, it just... My mum grew up here. Um, she was born during World War Two, very tail end. But she remembers going, to, walking to school as a child, and the smog being so thick that you couldn't see further than your own hand. Is how she described it. it was yes, like that heavy with smoke, London back then. You yeah, the, 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 the Clean Air Act um, of nineteen fifty six was in response to London's Great Smog of nineteen fifty two. And when you read about oh, the Great Smog of nineteen fifty two, you just think. It, it, just the idea of not being able to see and yeah. your lungs being f- full, full full of sm- smog and smoke would be disgusting because they banned um, cold fires in London. Yeah. Our old house was um, a Victorian house built in the 1880s. We had a big leak um, in the attic and it just made everything dirty because there was a load of soot trapped in the brickwork from before the the Clean Air Act, which banned cold fires in London. Right. So you just think if everyone has got a cold fire in London, it's amazing that anyone, uh, it's amazing that anyone was able to breathe at all, isn't it? Do, do, do you think people in that time were like looking at their clothes, going, "I'm caked in like dirt. What is this doing to my lungs?" Do you know what it must have been like? We're all old enough to have gone to the pub and gone to nightclubs pre-smoking ban. Yes. And I would come back yes. from the pub or from a nightclub and everything about me would stink of cigarettes. Yeah. And you yes. know, sometimes I would have a shower before going to bed because my hair hummed and my clothes were disgusting. <laughs> and you just put up with it. Yeah. I never, ever thought that was weird. I never, ever thought it was wrong. And I never thought anyone should do anything about it. And when they brought in the uh, the smoking ban in the mid 2000s i remember thinking this is just not going to work is it people will yeah people carry on smoking by to that cuz you're you're so right it's just what you're used to the thing i often think about is kissing your partner in a, in medieval britain you keep, when you keep neither coming you back are, to this well, i know but it's fascinating <laughs> you're such when a neither horny of you... history podcast <laughs> Welcome to Horny History with Tom Crane. (laughs) That's quite a good spin-off. Sex podcast, Tom. Be done with it. (laughs) No, but when neither of you have ever cleaned your teeth, but it must have been just fine, and there's just bits of food stuck between your remaining four teeth, and you're kind of like, but it just what is what. But you know, like sometimes your partner, if if neither of you, if one of you's brushed your teeth and the other one hasn't, it's noticeable. That you you're yep. like oh your your mouth smells minty where well, I can tell I stink but if you both haven't brushed your teeth they kind of it equalizes a bit doesn't it you don't notice no Chris I think that's mad <laughs> no, no, no. I, <laughs> no? I insist on what? double brushing <laughs> and what is the evidence I want to feel a, a damp end to a toothbrush and I I, I want a breath chest and then and only then can we indulge. <laughs> we indulge. <laughs> It wasn't just pollution. Seacoal began to transform the way the houses were built. 
So people noticed that the temperature of a wood fire was lower in intensity than that produced by sea coal. So there was that mini ice age, wasn't there, during the 17th century when the Thames, re- when the Thames regularly froze over, which meant that that heat was welcomed. But because the existing wooden buildings in towns and cities were at risk of burning down because of the heat generated, wood was swapped with brick and with stone. So houses got bigger and taller and population density grew. So Ah. Britain's economy was then transformed from a rural to an urban industrial one. Wow. Because coal fires were more intense than wood fires. And so they needed to change the buildings that people were living in. That is incredible. Yeah, because it was a fire risk. That's wow. Mad. So there's this one product that's fundamentally changed the way cities are built and how we live, basically. Yeah, and the Dutch understood that if you disrupted the coal shipping between Newcastle and London, you could potentially cripple the entire British economy. So the American revolutionaries, people like Alexander Hamilton, they understood this and they thought it would be a potentially useful tactic during the American Wars of Independence. So you would try and noble the trade between Newcastle and London, and then you could you could cripple the UK. So the wow. Americans, they'd read Adam Smith, who wrote the very famous book, Wealth of Nations, and he'd said that the coal trade from Newcastle to London employs more shipping than all the carrying trade of England. So to be self-sufficient in coal, the revolutionaries thought that would make us properly free of the crown and from, you know, British rule. So yeah. that meant they exploited coal seams that had been discovered in Virginia and the sea coal supplies found on the banks of the Ohio and Illinois rivers. So then they wanted an American coal trade because they were too reliant on the British coal trade. Amazing. Absolutely wow. incredible. Because before that, they'd imported the coal from Britain or along the coast from Nova Scotia and Cape Breton Island to Boston and to New York and to Philadelphia. So, you know, it's not bad, is it? For a little bit of rock picked up yeah. on the beaches of the northeast of England and thrown onto the fire for heat and light, it's had this enormous effect on global industry. Well, we're about to get into a fourth part that only subscribers are going to hear. So for £4.99 per month, you can subscribe to this podcast, get four parts in every single episode, get next week's episode a week early, listen ad-free, and get a bonus episode every month. If you want this fourth part, you can go to owatertime.com. And Tom, you've done the research for the fourth part. I have. I'm going to whet the listeners' appetites. It's pretty good research, isn't it? It's possibly the best research hmm. in in all, in any research that's ever been done how interesting saving yeah. good research back I, for our I don't subscribers. know if you remember the pandemic and the work that Pfizer and uh, different <laughs> companies did to AstraZeneca you know, bring AstraZeneca exactly to bring balance back to the world this research is is, is better than that well 499 go to oh, what a time.com